Hi, thanks for joining us. We're taking our Bibles and we're going to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11 in our study of the wilderness wanderings as we work our way through the book of Numbers. Today we're looking at what I've entitled the Diary of the Discouraged. And as we start looking at Numbers chapter 11, we're going to see almost almost like a little journal entry or a diary entry. Now, you may enjoy reading diaries, memoirs, you may not. There's humorous ones like the Diary of the Wimpy Kid that a lot of the kids and teens have enjoyed over the last few years being written. Or you enjoy the serious diaries like the Diary of Anne Frank. Or maybe you enjoy getting into memoirs like Franklin's memoirs or maybe uh, biographies of different individuals. And there's a reason we like that. We like to be able to get into the mind of people to understand what they're feeling, what they were going through in different situations. Uh, one of one of my favorite movies, personally, is called The Patriot. And there's a moment in the in The Patriot where uh, Benjamin Wallace and his militiamen capture a lot of Lord Cornwallis's personal items and effects. And in the movie, you have him reading Benjamin Wallace reading Cornwallis's memoirs, and he says that I've just read into the mind of a genius. Cornwallis knows more about war than any of us could hope to learn in a dozen lifetimes. He said, I, I, just, I just entered into his mind. I understood what he thinks, and now I know it. And we enjoy that. Well, when we get to Numbers chapter 11, yes, there's movement. Yes, it's about transition. And yes, they're finally on the journey. But Moses is going to give us a little glimpse into his personal struggles as a leader, as well as Israel's public struggle with their ultimate leader, God. And so as we, we look through Numbers chapter 11, those first 15 verses uh, at this point, let's, let's remember, yes, they're moving, but let's look at the battles, the struggles that they were facing in the midst of the transitions, in the midst of the change. Now remember, as we've went through the first, uh, this last chapter, chapter 10, and now moving into chapter 11, we see that God has clearly demonstrated his providence his provision for the children of Israel. The ark is going before them. The cloud is before them. The cloud is giving them protection. There's this constant provision that we've seen and we've talked about. We see that Israel departs Sinai with a direction and a protection from the ark and the cloud. Moses, at the end of chapter 10, he's going to be praying for the victorious leading of God. As you go before us, scatter our enemies and, and return unto us to the multitudes. You're going to give us the victory. He even told Hobab, hey, God is going to be blessing us. This is going to be a great thing. And so he, he had this excitement with God. And it's all this powerful picture of God's provision, God's protection, God's providence throughout chapter chapter 10, right before they're getting ready to start, start this journey. So now we have God blazing this trail for them into the wilderness. He's the one leading. He's the one guiding. And you, you, you have this ramped up excitement. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 11. It says, and when the people complained, what a stark contrast we go from the excitement and the victory and the direction and the protection and the provisions and the guiding and the leading to the people complained. And as we look, yes, they've been in captivity for 400 years. They've been in the wilderness now for about 14 months. And in three short days, we find them complaining. How impatient they were with God's timetable. But I don't think they're the only ones. How impatient can we grow 
with God's timetable. How long, Lord? How long are we going to be in this pandemic thing? How long are we going to face the, the potential feelings of overreach of a government? Or how long are we going to have to deal with this election? Is it going to be done on the, the second week of November? Or is it going to go on and linger? We don't know. But we know that God's in control. That's our theology that we've just worked through in chapter 10, that God is in control. And Israel here in three short days, they're looking and saying, oh, God, please, let's, you know, and they start, they start to complain. Now, as we look at the people's complaint in verses one to three, we're going to see that uh, it's mentioned here by Moses, and it really is like a thesis statement. It's like a general statement for the next couple chapters. Because in the next couple chapters, you're going to see a similar cycle that takes place over, over those, those moments. You're going to see the people are going to complain. That God is going to be displeased and angered with their complaining. And then God is going to deliver just consequences. He is a just God. And when he meets out his consequences and his punishment, it is right. It is just, it is not a vindictive God looking to just simply zap people. We'll talk about that more in our next couple uh, lessons as we, as we go through. And then you see the people cry out to God. So there's this little cycle that takes place over the next couple chapters. And Moses is basically in verses 1 to 3 giving us this, this general overview of what's about to happen. People are going to complain. God's not happy. God's going to judge. People are going to cry out and try and get things made right with God. And so we see that, but you really, the question I ask is how in the world could Israel forget all of it? How did they get to this point so quickly that they're complaining? There, there is no way around the juxtaposition. It's a big word, but I wanted to put it in there because when you read commentaries, you're going to read this word. There's no way around the fact that you have the providence and provision of God smacked right up against the complaining of Israel. And they, they, don't, they don't make sense to be next to each other. They seem to be very opposite. And yet Moses says, look, God provided, God protected, we complained. And it's, it's right there from chapter 10 to chapter 11. And yet we know the answer to the question of how in the world did they forget it all? How did this happen? Because don't we do this all the time? Our God provides for us everything that we need on a daily basis. But when we find ourselves in a little bit of trouble, when we find the tensions rise, when we find the trials that come, when we find the the changes in life and the transitions and the things happening all around our world, we quickly forget that God provides, God protects, God is providentially controlling and over everything. And we can find ourselves doing the exact same thing that Israel does. We can cast stones at them all we want. But if we're going to be honest, I know personally, I, this, these 15 verses have really challenged me because I like to complain. I like to be like Israel. I like to forget the blessings of God and look at my circumstances and my struggles. So as they complain, or the idea is murmur, it's that word that, it's, it's one of those words that sounds like what it is. You just murmur, 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 murmur. And that's, that's what they're doing. They're murmuring. They're complaining. This was not simply a disgruntled complaint where something was wrong and they wanted it fixed or it needed to be addressed. This is them rebelling in an open mutiny against God. And we'll see that as the passage unfolds. They are complaining. They're complaining as a dissatisfaction and a rebellion in response to God's leadership and God's provision. 
And that's what we see them complain about throughout the book of Numbers, even back in Exodus. They don't like the leading of God or the leadership that God has placed in front of them. And they don't like what God is providing for them. There's not enough water. There's not enough food. We want meat. We don't want this. And they complain about God's provisions and his leadership. And so that's when we look at this passage here, talking about complaining, that's what we're going to focus in on. In context here, complaining about God's protection, God's provision, God's leadership, it is an open, rebellious mutiny against God. And so the people are sitting here murmuring. They are complaining. We're not told at this point in verses 1 to 3. It just says, verse 1, it just says, and when the people complained, when they, when they murmured, we don't know what it's all about. We just know that they murmured. They complained. And it had happened. So in this first initial part, we're not told exactly what it's about. But look at God's reaction to this murmuring. It says that God took this personally. It said, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. You see that repetition of him and his. This was a per- he took this as a personal affront to him. We know that when we grumble about personal circumstances, when we grumble about spiritual leaders or anything else, we're actually finding fault in God. What you have given to us, who you have given to us, it's not sufficient, God. You made a mistake. Now, we would never openly say that. Well, maybe we would, but we wouldn't typically openly say that. But when you get to the core, when you get to the heart of the grumbling and the complaining, it is a dissatisfaction with God. They grumble, and it angers the Lord. And what did it bring? It brought fiery judgment. And the fire of the Lord burnt among them. Notice his anger is kindled, just that picture of fire. And then the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. So it goes to the uttermost parts there. The idea is those outside of the camp, the unclean, the, uh, the, the forbidden, the unsafe areas. So, so the, the con- at this point, the complaining, the murmuring seems to be outside of camp on the outskirts. Remember, there are, we're going to see this in just a second here, and we've talked about it. There are people who are not part of the 12 tribes who have come along with the Jews. They've come along for the ride. They've got out of Egypt. They live on the outskirts of camp. It could be individuals who are unclean, maybe had leprosy or had a disease, and they've been put out of camp. But the consuming fire here, he says very clearly, it's outside of the camp. God does not want that to come into the camp. So what does he do? He's, gonna, he's going to bring this judgment. A lot of people, a number of commentators see this as God protecting his people, saying this attitude, this heart attitude of murmuring, it can't be let in. It needs to remain outside of camp, and I'm going to help protect my people by, by showing that this is not allowed. This is not acceptable behavior or attitudes to have. So he brings this fiery judgment, which people notice. They very much notice because what are they going to do? As we see in verse 3, they're going to, uh, or verse 2, excuse me, the people cried out to Moses, and Moses is going to pray to the Lord, and the fire is going to be quenched. They wanted it to stop. The people here, they're really fickle. 
Because who do they complain about? They complain about Moses. And yet, who do they go to? And they understand that he's their mediator. He's the one. But they go to Moses and they say, Moses, we need your help. We don't like your leadership, but right now we need your help. You need to go to God. And so Moses is going to go to God as their leader, as their mediator. He does that. And it really is a beautiful picture of Christ, isn't it? That in the midst of their sin, in the midst of the struggle, they go to their mediator to go to God. And it's beautiful that we have a great mediator in Jesus Christ. He is the one who goes, who allows us to now enter into the throne room of grace. He is the one, because of Christ being our mediator, I can now enter and I can go to him as my mediator. And yet I can even go to God because of Christ's mediatorial work. The fact that he has allowed me because of his grace and because of his shed blood and because of my relationship with him, I can now enter in and talk with God. I don't have to go through a Moses. I can go directly to our great God. We do have to give them a little bit of props here because they turn from their complaining and they do cry out. They, they say, Moses, we need help. So there is a little bit of that, that change, at least seemingly, but it's not because of a heart attitude change. It's because they wanted the circumstances to stop. They wanted the fire to be done, to be put away with. And so they, they say, just get, get everything back. We just, Moses, fix it. Fix, fix the fire. And God, God hears Moses' prayer and he, he quenches the fire. Now, it would seem that it's all, all good and done. Everything's great. Okay, now we can, we can move forward. But notice how verse 4 continues as, we, as it expands as this, this cancer in the, in the body of Israel festers and, and grows. It's, it's, this, it's just creeping in. It says in verse 4, And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? Now, this word, the, the mixed multitude, some translations have the rabble. What it is, is it's, it's an ungodly rabble. It's a group of people that they were on the outskirts no more. Notice where they're at. They're among the people, it says. Now they, those who were among them fell a-lusting. The word that's used here is talking about non-Israelites who came along out of Egypt. The word that's used in other passages and other uh, extra-biblical literature talks about those who are not part of this, this blood, your blood clan your blood tribe. They are from outside. So now this group that was on the outskirts who had, who had no initial land in the 12 tribes in the layout that God has established, they're on the outskirts living, still benefiting from the manna, still benefiting from God's provisions. And yet now their attitude is creeping in. They are among the children of Israel. And it, is, it has crept in. And, and so what we find is they have fallen a lusting, the, the King James says. Or in other words, they had a craving. They had this desire. There are often foods. And that's what, that's what this is based around. There's foods that are in our life that sometimes we simply miss and crave. When I showed Sharon this picture, she's rolled her eyes. Because she understands, though she doesn't understand, there, is, there are certain foods from growing up in Chicago that I love. And craving White Castles, whenever I go to Chicago, it's in my mind. Like, oh, White Castles. And yes, I know, someone's going to tell me there's one 45 minutes away in Allentown. I'm well aware where it's at on MacArthur Road. I, I, trust me, I know. 
because I love White Castles. I know they're not good for me, but I crave them, and they make me want to have them. Not really, but that's the idea. There are certain things, certain foods that, that we long to. And I understand from, from Israel's perspective and from the rabble's perspective that, yes, they would like maybe some meat, but their attitude is wrong. They're, they're lusting after this, and how it comes out, it comes out in a complaining spirit. It's never just merely a personal issue. The rabble start, but what happens? It has this devastating effect on the people of God. Complaining trickles down. It builds steam. One starts, it's so easy to join in. And we just can continually complain, and it can fester, and it can grow. And that's what happens here. So this mixed multitude, their craving rubs off on the children of Israel. Look what it says. Look, look as you go through verse 4. It says, uh, they, in verse 5, we'll start there. We remember when the fish. We remember the fish which we did eat. Now, they wept again in verse number 4. They're, they're returning. The idea here of wept again is they've returned to their former complaining. They've complained before. They've complained before about meat. They've complained before about the diet that they're eating. And they're saying, we want meat. But it's not just that they want meat. Look at how they phrase the question there in verse 4. It's not, okay, where's the meat? You know, it's not the old Wendy's, where's the beef commercial? That's not what's happening. Look at what they ask. They say, who will provide the flesh? This is not about just what. It's about an attack on leadership. It's about God, are you going to provide us flesh? Moses, are you going to provide us flesh? Who's going to do it? Someone needs to step up and find us some meat. And so they don't just talk about, oh, we just want to change and diet, though that's what they wanted. They want to know, where's the leadership going to do it? How are they going to fix it? How are they going to change it? How are they going to get it back to the way it was in Egypt? And they, they're attacking, they're, they're directing their complaints to their leadership. It goes on. They say, remember, look at the selective memory here. We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely. Really? Are you really free? When you were in Egypt, you were not free. You were slaves. You were in bondage. None of your fish, even if Pharaoh gave you fish, it wasn't free. He only gave you fish so that he could break your back more. So he can make you work harder. <clears throat> we see that they have this selective memory. It's almost as if they're saying opposite of Patrick Henry. who said, give me liberty or give me death. They look and say, give me bondage or give us death. They're, they want to go back. They say, give us that food that we can go back. And so they say, we remember how good it was back in our bondage, in our slavery. And they say, but now our soul is dried up. It's, it's the word for the physical and the spiritual, every single part <clears throat> of my being. They're saying it's parched. It's shriveled up. It is so bad out here. It's so difficult. Our circumstances are brutal. Come on, Moses. Come on, God. Fix it. There's nothing, verse 6. There is nothing 
at all before our eyes. All right, well, okay, yeah, there's that thing called manna. But we want something different than what God is providing. And that was at the heart of their complaint. It was a lack of contentment to God, toward God, toward God's provisions, toward God's leadership. And they would just complain. And it was draining. Now, these individuals are complaining about what they had. And they're complaining about what they didn't have. How do you... How are you supposed to appease that? Oh, the manna we have, it's so boring. It's so, oh, we wish we had that. We don't have it, but we wish we had that. And this attitude of complaining, of murmuring, of that lack of contentment comes out clearly. And I don't think it's just with Israel. Do we often find ourselves complaining about what we have? and what we don't have, where we're at, where we want to be. And we can find our our lack of contentment in God, in God's provisions, in God's plans, in God's providence, in God's protection. We can be very discontent in that. So we see that this heart of a complainer is starting to manifest itself in this passage. Did you catch it? They over-exaggerate their situation. Oh, we, there's nothing left. Our soul, our body, we are shriveling up. We're about to die. It is so bad. They exaggerate the advantages of their former situation. Back in Egypt, we had all of this. It was so good. The good old days of bondage and slavery. The good old days of Egypt. Oh, it was so great. But don't we do that even in our spiritual lives? Oh, the good old days of being worldly. Let me go back to that. Rather than living the way that God desires for me to live, rather than following his plans and his, his providence and his protection, I want to just go back to my worldly self before I was saved, my Egypt, my sinful nature, letting it just manifest and play itself out rather than living wholly unto the Lord. There's a danger to the good old days, to just wanting to get back to the way it was. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10, he says this, Say not, why were the former days better than these? In other words, oh, so much better back then. For it's not wisdom that you ask this. Solomon looks and he's comparing wisdom and folly in this passage in, in Ecclesiastes 7. And he looks and says, Hey, this concept of, oh, everything was better back in the good old days, we need to get back to. Don't we say that right now? Oh, I wish I could just get back to January 2020 and let's do a reset. Man, I never want to go through 2020 again. I don't know about you. But to to do the reset and let's get back to the way it was before COVID. It was so much better. Really, was it? Okay, yeah, there weren't some mask issues or there weren't some restrictions on how often you, you know, or where you could go out to eat or how much, how many people could go into your kid's sports game or anything like that. Yes, there are those. But was it really better? Weren't we battling with sin issues then? Weren't we battling with discontentment then? Weren't we battling with the apathy of our spiritual lives then? Weren't we battling with the need for our church to grow? It was still a struggle back then. In fact, Spurgeon and Matthew Henry, both in their commentaries, call this the infirmity of age. 
They say we can look back and we say, wow, it was so much better. We can look back and say, wow, the 60s, the 70s, it was so much nicer than what we go through right now. Really? Or are we going to go back to talking about the frustrations with this this establishment and the, the frustrations of the hippie movement and the rebellion against God? Oh, well, maybe we need to go back to the 40s and the 50s. It was so much better then. You know, other than we were in the middle of a world war, other than we went into a Cold War situation where everybody was afraid of nuclear warheads being launched all over the place. Oh, let's keep, and we can keep going back, but every Every generation has issues and has transitions and has changes and has difficulties. So they look and say, this is just an infirmity of age. Don't displace. In fact, uh, they, they talk about that we deify the past. It was so much, oh, the, those were the good, those were the best times. We deify the past. We disparage the present. Oh, this is so bad. Why are we, this, the, the world we're living in, it's just falling apart. And they become discontented about the future. Do you see how bad it's going? Yes, we know that according to scriptures, it's going to get worse. We understand that. But I also understand that that's part of God's plan, that he's going to allow that to happen. And so as we go through life, let's just not, oh, it's so much, if we could just go back, I don't want to be living in what I'm living in now. And oh, who knows what's going to happen. That will shackle us. That will cause us to want to complain. And complaining is not a beneficial attitude. It is not a holy attitude. It needs to be removed. Though it is difficult, we need to, we need to cut that away. This, this attitude, the heart of the complainer, they tend to view only the worst things. We don't have flesh to eat. And that is so bad. It's so hot. It's so brutal out here. But we don't have flesh to eat. They only focus on the bad. And they begin to make baseless accusations. Who's going to do this? What's our leadership doing? How are they going to fix it? And they have this attitude toward Moses and God and their leadership. And they begin to make that. I struggle with those. I don't know about you, but I personally... I battle with all of those. This message has been a smack upside the head. It is a struggle for me to deal with those because I have the heart, the natural heart of a complainer. And yet, how is that benefiting me? How is that benefiting you? It doesn't. Moses is going to say, hey, in the midst of all your complaining, you know, look in verse 6. It says, but our soul's so dried up, there is nothing at all besides this manna, before our eyes. And Moses says, well, let me, let me take a second and, and explain. For future generations, for us, what are they complaining about? Well, they're complaining about this manna. What is this manna? And, and he goes through, and he talks about, if you read through verse 7 and 8, it's going to talk about that it's like this whitish coriander seed. It has the color of bdellium, uh, a whitish pearl-like color that the people gathered it every morning, ground it, baked it, made cakes. They tasted like oil. Other passages talk about it, it tasted like honey. But every morning they would, they would do this. But look at, look at verse 9. Verse 9 gives you, a, it's, it's very key. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it you like, okay, what does that mean? It means that every single night, there's a night every single day, and there's a day that follows the night. So when you wake up in the morning, there was provision by God for you, six days a week. And on that sixth day, guess what? He's going to give you double the amount so that you don't have to collect on the Sabbath day. 
It's a miraculous meal every morning. And so this shows the daily loving watch care of God. God is providing, and isn't it amazing about God? Me? Fine, you want to complain about it? Then I'm not going to give you any manna tomorrow morning. See how you like that. And then they complain about not having manna that morning. Well, I'll teach them. And yet God in his grace and in his tender love for his people, even despite or in spite of their complaining, he still lovingly provides and watches over them. It literally was their daily bread. That is what God was giving to them. In fact, if you look through scriptures and you you look for manna, Exodus 16 talks about that it is the bread given to you from the Lord. Psalm 78 said that it was the bread of heaven. Psalm 78 verse 25 says it's the food that the angels ate. Psalm 105 again says that this is the bread of heaven. First Corinthians, Paul talks about that it's a spiritual, they ate a spiritual together or a supernatural food. It was miraculous. It was by God every single morning given to them. There's no way around it. Israel is rebelling here and complaining against God's plan and God's provision. They weren't trusting in God. They were frustrated with God. They started to complain. It's revealing again their heart attitude. What did they want to do? God says, let's go forward. We're going to the promised land. And they're looking and saying, no, we want to go back to Egypt because the food was better. And we want the fish. We want the garlics and the leeks and the onions. We want some vegetables. We want some meat. Not just this manna stuff. Yes, you've provided it for us, but that's not sufficient for us. And they complain about it. What are they doing? They're calling God's purposes evil. It's not good, God. It's bad. You've brought us out here. How many times do they talk about you brought us out here to kill us? You know, we're going to die out here in the wilderness. Your, your plans are evil. They're not good. And they desire to go in the exact opposite direction from which God wants them to go. God allows transitions. God allows change. God works in this world to adjust. He brings about things that happen in our society, in our world, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a world war, whether it's a crisis of whatever. He allows some of those things. And sometimes it's to get us to change. Sometimes it's to adjust. Maybe not always, but we need to be willing to look and say, are there transitions? Are there changes that need to occur? Because that's what the direction God wants us to go. We need to be praying about those types of things. They were finding joy in their circumstances, and there's a danger to that. To just find joy in our circumstances. Their complaints weren't caused by their outward circumstances. Remember what it says? They fell a lusting, or it was a desire that they internally had. It was a craving. Their circumstances revealed the condition of their heart. It gave them the cause to complain. Sadly, they were trying to find joy just in their circumstances. When it got a little tough, when it got a little rocky, when the road seemed a little bit longer than they were hoping to, what did they do? Their heart attitudes came out. They revealed their discontentment. They revealed their displeasure. They revealed their anger. And they complained. Our joy in the Lord 
should not be found in our circumstances, but rather it should be a core fundamental value of our life. Our joy is in Christ. Our joy is in the hope that he has provided for us. Our joy is in him. The joy of our Lord, that's going to be our strength. Not our circumstances, not when we get a vaccine, not when we face and we get what we want or when we don't. The joy that we have in life comes only through Christ. That is where true joy comes from. And that's where we need to place our joy, not in our circumstances, but in God. Just as the rabble's desire and complaints affected the children of Israel, the whiny rebellion of the children of Israel drastically impacted Moses. He battled. He struggled. Look in verses 10 to 15. We see that these complaints, they've permeated the entire camp. Moses heard the people weep throughout their families. Every man in the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord, there it is again, was greatly kindled. Moses was also displeased. The anger of the Lord, we see it kindled. And then he's angry because he's, he's not angry because he's impatient. He's not angry because he's unsympathetic. We see the patience of God throughout the wilderness wanderings. But rather because they are reacting poorly to where he has led them and to what he has provided for them. That is what the heart attitude of these people were, and that is what has angered the Lord. That God, what you're giving to me, what you have provided me with, where you have taken me, what your plans are, they're not good enough. I need more. Rather than being content and joyful in Christ and in God, they want something different. And that's what angered the Lord. But look at what happens with Moses. Moses was displeased. Now we could instantly say, look, yeah, Moses was angry with the people. He was displeased. The word literally has the idea of he was distressed, discouraged, distraught, depressed. He was struggling. Why, why do we get to that point? Why, when we look, Moses' reaction was not because the people rejected God's providence and provision. He's discouraged. He is depressed because the people's attitude is making his job as a leader more difficult. He's personalized it. He's looking and saying, this has really discouraged me. How, how do we come to that? How do we get to that battle? He's disheartened that God has given him the task. He looks and says, God, I, the people you've given me, the direct, what you want me to do, he actually brings this to him and God. And Moses lets us into his diary entry. Under the inerrant inspiration of God, we get a glimpse into a conversation between Moses and God. And as he talks to God, he's going to bring out these questions. He's going to look in verse 11. He says, why have you, God, afflicted your servant? Why is this so difficult? Why, why have you put me here? He goes on and he says, if, why have I not found favor in your sight? Verse 11. And uh, wherefore have I not found favor in your sight that you lay this burden of all these people on me. He says, you've given me this difficult task that I can't do. I can't handle it. They're not my children, he says in verse 12. Have I conceived these people? Have I begotten them? That you should say unto me, 
carry them in your bosom as a nursing father bears the suckling child unto the lamb which thou swearest unto their fathers. Look at that, look at that phrasing for a second. What does Moses say? He, it's really interesting because in the Hebrew, he uses masculine terms for feminine words. He's going to look and say, did I, did I conceive them? I, I can't conceive. He's like, did, did I birth them? I can't do that. I'm not physically made up to do that. He's like, can I carry them in my bosom and can I nurse them? Uh, God, I am not designed to do this. That's what he's saying here. He's like, you didn't build me that way. And Moses is, is complaining. He's looking and saying, God, I can't do this. I am not designed to deal with these people. The way they complain, the, the expectations that they have, I, I can't do this anymore, God. He looks and he says, where am I to get meat for all these people? Verse 13, when should I have flesh to give them to all the people? Moses here realized that the people expected him to provide. He took, their, he took it seriously. He understood that in a role of leadership, he has a responsibility to them. But when did God ask Moses to provide them meat? When did God ask Moses to protect them, to providentially provide and guide and lead? He says, Moses, when I tell you what to do, do it. I will provide the manna on a daily basis. This is a real challenge for me in, in leadership. To look and to say, yes, I have expectations and responsibilities that, that I have for you as a congregation. But ultimately, you're not my congregation. You're not pastor's congregation. You're not Pastor John's congregation or Pastor Tony or Pastor Kim's congregation. We are under shepherds. We lead as God leads. I have to ultimately say, this is God's church. You are God's people. And I have to do my part, but I ultimately have to trust God that he will build his church, that God will direct, that God will guide, that God will lead us. And we, we seek that wisdom and that, those desires from God on a daily basis. But Moses, Moses takes that on himself and it finds, you find Moses extremely discouraged and depressed. He is battling, saying, I can't do this anymore. It is too hard. Did you notice that? Look at verse 14. I am not able to bear this. All these people alone. I can't do it by myself, God. I can't. Can't do it alone. If I found any favor in your sight at all, look how, look how dark this moment is in Moses' life. Look at what the complaining did to this leader. The, the droning, whining, and rebellion of the people. Look at where it brings Moses to. Verse 15. And if thou deal thus with me, if you're going to keep it and allow this to keep going, and God, he says, just kill me. I want it to be done. I'm tapping out. Take me out, God kill me. I, I can't do this. Let me not see my wretchedness, he says. Or in other words, my adversity is the word. 
It's like, God, I can't keep looking around and seeing the complaining and hearing it night after night and seeing people discontent and seeing people complaining about your provisions and your providence and your leading and your protection. And they're just ungrateful, God, and I can't do it. And they want to go back to the way it used to be. They're not content with where you've brought us. And God, I just can't do it anymore. And Moses battles. You know, really challenged me personally this week, thinking about that in relationship to our Moses. As we look at our leader, how does my complaining impact my pastor? Now, I would probably argue to say many of us would put Pastor Burgraff up on a, a spot where we're looking and saying, here's a really spiritual man in our life. We, we wouldn't follow him if we didn't feel that way. But I'm thinking most of us would probably put Moses just a little bit higher than Pastor as a spiritual godly, like there's no one outside of Christ who was like Moses. I mean, he was just the amazing prophet, the man of God who directed and lead, led. And yet, what does the, dis, the disparaging remarks, the complaints, the desire for the people to just have it back the way it used to be? I just want church to be like it was before COVID. I just, when are you going to get us back to that? When can we get back to the normal? And we find ourselves complaining about where God has led, what God is doing. And have you stopped to think, I had to this week, how do my complaints, how do my disparaging remarks, how do they impact him? We would not know any of this had Moses not under the inspiration of God wrote it down because they were internal. They were battles that Moses was having. I'm not saying pastors there, but could my complaints drive him to being frustrated. I have to be careful of that. He's not said anything like that, but this week I had to think about it. And I don't think I'm the only one that we think about our complaining and how it impacts everyone. We see that it started outside the camp and moved into the mixed multitude. It moved into and eventually found its way to the leader at the center of camp. And it's just permeated because of the complaining. How did Moses get there? Look at this, the context. It's simply because as he was leading, there was complaining. They complained. What did they complain about? They complained about what they had. They complained about what they didn't have. They complained about wanting to get things back to the way they used to be. You have to be careful because God is leading this world and God may be transitioning this world and changing some things. We have to be okay with that. Because God's in control. Let's trust him. Israel and their leadership at this point are at a very low spot. And it's because of a discontented heart that manifested itself in a complaining spirit. A discontent heart that manifests itself in a complaining spirit. You know, as I walked away from this passage and just trying to summarize and think about some points about complaining and about where I'm at, whenever I complain about my circumstances, I'm ultimately denying God's providence over me. My actions show my theology. And I, I believe that God is good. I believe that God is reliable. I believe that he is a provider and a protector in my life. But do my complaint, does my complaining spirit demonstrate what I believe about God? 
that God is in control? Do I believe that? Do I say it? Do my posts, my blogs, my texts, my words, do they evidence my theology that I trust that God is in control? As I walk away from this section of Scripture, whenever I complain, I can and probably will spread a spirit of complaining among God's people. And that is not healthy. And art should not be the one. I should be leading you in a correct attitude. Our complaining spirit is never merely personal. It can have a devastating effect on the people of God. Am I the type of person that is inspiring you to aspire and desire to be more Christ-like? When I face trials, when you face tribulations, when we face pandemics, do we have a complaining spirit or do we have a Christ-like spirit? Am I more worried about the gospel and the gospel going out during this time than I am about just getting my rights back as an American? What am I more concerned about? What am I inspiring you to do with my attitude, with my speech, with my texts, with my posts? Am I inspiring to goodness or complaining? When I give way to a spirit of complaint, rather than living out a spirit of trust, there are consequences for the whole congregation. And that is not simply because I'm a pastor. It is because I'm a member of a body of Christ. This local body, and we should not, and we do not need the spirit of complaint, but rather a spirit of contentment and joy and peace in the providence and the trusting and the provisions and the protection of our great God who is leading us, who is guiding us, who is in control. When I walk away from this passage, whenever I complain, I undervalue the rich provisions of God. We can easily experience the marvelous overflowing blessings of God. But when we run into trials, how quickly we can forget. And have I forgotten all that God has done for me? Maybe this week I need to work on highlighting all the many blessings that I've experienced through this pandemic, the time with my family, the time to just be able to slow down and focus in on God's word, the time that I've been, been able to have to interact with people in a different way rather than just complaining about all that has changed or what I don't like. Do I find myself complaining about what has been dealt to me and then complaining about what has not been? Why don't I have that? Why did you give them that? What about me, God? Rather than looking and saying to God, thank you for what you've provided to me. And I'm going to find joy in you because you have provided, you have protected, you are providentially in control. So today I ask you this. If you were to write a daily journal and you had to do it under the inspired inerrant aspect that Moses did, that's why, I mean, we know that this happened because this is a glimpse under the inspiration of God into Moses. If you couldn't put spin on it, if you could, you just had to lay it out the way it was, would you need to say that you have a complaining heart or do you have a contented heart? Do you have the heart that's just finding problems and everything? You're always looking for the worst. You're deifying the past. You're disparaging the present. You're, you're discontent about the future. Would you find yourself saying, oh, it was so much better then? Would you find yourself saying that it's so bad right now and over-exaggerating the situations you're in? Would you find yourself complaining? What would your journal entry honestly have to look like about complaining or contentment? 
We say God's got this. That's our theology. We understand that God's in control. We understand that he is providentially moving across this world. We understand that COVID didn't catch him off guard. We know that. But I ask you, are we complaining? Because when we complain, it is a total failure to trust that God is in charge and that he cares about us and that he will protect us and that he will provide for us. Are my words matching my beliefs? And what does Jesus say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, my complaining spirit, according to Jesus Christ, reveals my heart, my theology, my beliefs about God. We're saying God's got this. Let's work on then not complaining about whatever this is, but rather let's find our contentment in Christ, knowing that he is in control and I can trust in his providence, his protection, and his provisions. So God, help me this week to have a contented spirit in you and not a complaining one. For it's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day.